Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Ephesians. If you are using a pew Bible, which I'll be using this morning, it is not page 976. Flip on over to page... Eleven fifty nine. Eleven fifty nine. Before I read this, just a reminder about where we have been, but also what we're doing. Um, we're studying the book of Ephesians this fall. We'll be continuing in continuing in this book in the winter, all the way up till Easter. And as we've said before, one of the things that we like to do here is. Uh, go, take books in the Bible and go through them as best we can. And uh, this does a couple of things. One, it helps us to take the book in its context, but it also tells us here's God's word for us today. It's not the pastor's hobby horse, what he wants to talk about every Sunday. Um, we, 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 we outline a series and we want to know what this book has to say, and we don't, we don't miss anything that way. And, and so for this morning, we come to chapter 2, and this is God's word for us this morning. Now, before I read that, a reminder of where we have been in the first 15 verses of chapter 1. Um, really, Paul has been just on this rant. It's a, remember, I told you it's, a, it's, it's, it's one big run-on sentence there. And what it is is praise, is that as he begins to think about who God is, and as he begins to think about what he has done in his own life, this is what unfolds. It just sort of comes out of him, and he can't help but talk about it. And then what we saw two weeks ago was that this is his prayer for them as we get to the second half of chapter 1. And what is he praying for the Ephesians? He's praying that they will know the power of God, the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, that 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 resurrected him, now that is, has him ascended and sitting on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, um, and that this power is still and is um, active in you as well, working in your life, okay? And he wants them to rejoice in this. And now we get to chapter 2, and this is what Paul has been thinking this entire time, and now he finally lands on it, and that is, what was our condition prior to this? Because for Paul, God is only as powerful as we understand what he has done uh, pertaining to our original condition. And that's where we turn to this morning. We're going to be in this section, these first 10 verses, for two, day, for two Sundays. So this is part one, and uh, we'll be in part two of that um, next Sunday. But let us give our attention to the reading of God's Word found in the book of Ephesians. And I'm going to read all 10 verses for us this morning. Beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in, your, in the trespasses and, the, and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4 but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would graciously give us your spirit as you promised to do, and that you would do a miracle, and by miracle that you would soften hardened hearts, that we may see and hear of things that otherwise we could not, that we would respond to your word that is alive in us. We ask this for your glory alone. Amen. I don't know if you've ever um, <clears throat> come across the, those shows. I think maybe the Discovery Channel does a lot of them where um, you know, they, they find something old and they make it new again, um, kind of the theme. For me, it's, it's the car. Um, I forget the names of some of these shows, but you know, if some guy, some, somebody comes across a junkyard of sorts, finds this car, then takes it home and refurbishes it. You know what I'm talking about. Um, one of these episodes that just seared in my brain, this guy was looking for this particular model of 40s, 50s Chevy or Ford truck. I'm not a car guy, so I'm not exactly sure what it was. And he's just, he knows what it is. He's looking for it. And he gets a phone call. And this guy is saying, hey, I, I have, I think, what you're looking for. And so, you know, of course, he drives out to this farm. And um, he meets with the guy. And it's nowhere to be found. And they drive another seemingly, you know, two miles on a dirt road and go behind, you know, this set of trees and over here. And then back in the corner, there's this sort of just overgrowth of, you know, pile of something. And the guy's like, well, there it is. <laughs> there what is, Right. It's, there it is. There's the truck. And as you get closer, you can kind of begin to sort of make out. Maybe there's a wheel over here. Um, and in this particular episode, though, the tree was just growing right out of the, the, the I mean, it was out of the engine block of the car. Um, and I'm just thinking to myself, there's no way this guy's going to take this. Um, I don't even know how he's going to get it out of here. But as he's walking around it and as he's kind of inspecting things as best he can, Without hesitation, he just goes, I'll take it. I will take it. He knew what he was looking for, and, and, and more than anything else, he knew what it was supposed to be. He knew what it was supposed to be. And so for the rest of the show, this is why we sit and watch. You know, he gets that thing back to his garage. He, he starts taking the tree out of the engine block. Um, he starts breaking it apart. He starts putting it back together, ordering the parts that it needs polishing this, sanding that, putting a new coat of paint on this. And by the end of the show, right, the payoff, he drives it out of his garage, and it looks incredible, right? Well, as I mentioned, we're going to be in this section of Ephesians for uh, two weeks, so we'll part one, part two. And what Paul does here in the text that we just read is he, he shows the Christians in Ephesus, which is to the church, he says, hey, this is who you were before, and that's what we just read. That's what we're going to look at this morning. This is who you were before. You were dead. And that has implications for, for, for Paul that he wants them to know about that we're going to actually look at this morning. But we don't look at that without understanding who we are after. And that's, that, that's what I'm really wanting to, to call this Sunday, next Sunday. This is the church before and after. It is just like that person who goes out into that field and finds this 
broken down, unusable truck, takes it back, makes it new, because he knows what he's looking for, but more importantly, he knows what it is supposed to be. That is Paul's message to the Ephesians in this section. Even though as he's carrying this with him, as he's, as he's been talking all along, he wants them to know that this is who you were before. And one of the main reasons he wants them to know this is because he, again, wants them to know uh, what is the power of God in them. And the only way you know about the power of God, the power of something, is recognizing what it's done, what that, what that original condition was in, and what it is in now. And so that's where he takes us. And so let us go there together as we look at the first five verses in this section. And this, for this morning, this is, this is who you were before. Okay, so we're going to talk about that. And, and we're always going to remember that, that there is an after coming. Okay, this isn't who you, the church is now. But this is who you were before. So let's do that together. Two things, these are not points, that I want us to keep in mind as we go through this section. Um, one, for Paul, for all of Scripture, this is universal. What he's about to say to us is universal for all mankind. It's not that some people were dead in their trespasses and sins. It's not that some people were by nature objects of, of wrath, as we'll get to. Everyone was. And you'll notice this in the grammar, right? He starts out with the uh, second, person, second person plural pronoun, you, or as we all should be saying, y'all, um, as I like to say, in the first, first two verses there, because he is talking to the Gentile uh, converts in Ephesus. But then in verse 3, he shifts to the, to the we there, right? He includes himself in this. And I just want to highlight that because we need to, to understand this isn't just for some people. He's talking about everyone as it pertains to the natural condition that God has now, what, made them alive in Christ. They were dead, but now they're alive. Okay, the second thing, though, is to remember the purpose of Paul, and that is to show us the power of God, as I had said, and this is what leads to praise. This is what leads to praise. Paul has just finished talking about the power of God in chapter 1. Jamie preached on it two weeks ago, and just to recall verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. And Paul goes on to talk about what this power has done, how this power has raised Jesus from the dead, has seated him on the throne above all powers and authority and rule. And this is not the half of it. That same power, Paul goes on to say, is at work in you. And so in order for us to understand what that really means, we must do the work of going through these first three verses, to understand who we were before God, in verse 5, made us alive with Christ. Okay, <clears throat> let's do that. <clears throat> this morning, I want to look at three aspects of this life before we were made alive with Christ. <clears throat> and these are not printed on your bulletin. Uh, it is the world, it is the devil, and it is the flesh. The world, the devil, and the flesh. Let's look at that first one, the world. Beginning there in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, or cosmos, which really, literally means the age of this world order. Okay? 
All right? But what, what, what does Paul mean here when he says world? Well, when Paul speaks of this world, he doesn't mean the physical nature of it, you know, the ocean or the trees, those types of things. He is referring to the world, spiritually speaking, that doesn't believe in God or follow God because why? They are dead, dead spiritually. And this is a world that they, the Ephesians, once walked in. Paul refers to this world in other places. In Galatians 1.4, he talks about it as this evil age, which might not be language that we traffic in a whole lot, but that's what he means when he says world, this present evil age. And the present evil age that his audience lives in, which we live in today as well, is often referred to as this time between the times. Okay, And so just again, to kind of pull back what Paul is talking about here, he's talking about the world that exists between the resurrection of Jesus Christ on one end and his return on the other. Okay? The resurrection of Jesus on one end, which inaugurates this, his kingdom, inaugurates uh, God's full plan of restoring all things, but it hasn't come in full. The fullness comes over here when he returns. And so this time between the times is where Paul's audience lives, and it's where you and I live as well. And because that's true, there are people here in this room, people in this world, who are still, what, dead in their trespasses and sins. In other words, they are still spiritually dead and still spiritually a part of this world. That is what he is referring to. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, the world is the outlook and the mentality and the organization of life without God or apart from God. It does not mean the physical universe, the mountains and the rivers and so on. The world is a mentality, Lloyd-Jones writes, an outlook, a view of life without God. God is shut out right. That's the world. What Paul is telling the Ephesians before they were made alive with Christ is that this is where they lived or walked. This is where they once walked. This is what governed their outlook and mentality of life, spiritually speaking. Why? Because they were dead. I remember my first visit to a Sam's Wholesale, Sam's Club. I know you guys have Costco up here, um, which is, we can argue about what's better later. But um, I remember the first time Sam's came to uh, the area where I grew up in a small town in Tennessee, and it was a big deal. And uh, to go into this warehouse that I'd never seen anything like it, and just, just, this massive space with all of this stuff. And when you get in there, it, it, you know, something happens, right? You just change. You doesn't, if you don't go in there with a list of things, you're done. Um, and you, you forget about what time it is. Um, everything needs to be bought because it's so cheap and whether you need it or not. Uh, but, you know, and, and I also began to notice they have food here, which is good because you could spend five hours here and not even know it. Um, the best times were when my dad would go, and my dad, who never spent a dime on anything, something happened when he walked through the doors of Sam's, and that is, it, it just the pocketbook opened up miraculously, and if it got into the cart, which my brother and I knew, then it was going to go through checkout. So just get it in there, whether he knows it or not, 
and you're good to go. Um, there's something about that experience that, that hints, I think, at what Paul is getting at here with this idea of the world, the external here of what, where, where the walking dead, as he also refers to it, um, live. That it's sort of this almost blissful loss of self and all reality as if you were being driven by an unseen force that controls your mentality, that controls your outlook on life. Do we need, right, a 40-pound container of peanut butter? No, put it in the cart. What is that? That's the world. A mentality that controlled and governed your outlook on life without God, not saying that's true if you go to Sam's, but coming back to the text, right, Paul is simply reminding the Ephesians that this is the world that they once walked. It was a world that, that, that governed them in a way that they were, they were happy to go along with, but they weren't really in control of it either in one sense. That there's something happening here that has a, a different mentality, a different view of life altogether. And this is where they existed. And a side note about this, when he, he comes to them and he tells them, but this is where you once walked. I love how Paul loves to remind his audience of their past, doesn't he? And we'll see why that's important later. But it's important for us to remember that as well. This is the world of which you once walked as well. And Paul's not talking again about the physical being of this world. That would be impossible. The Christians in Ephesus are to be in this world, but not of it, as we read in other places. But what Paul is saying is you are no longer governed. You are no longer controlled by the outlook, or the mentality of this world. And why? Verse 5, because God has made you alive. That's the power. That's the power. Okay? All right, this is the first point. The world that the Ephesians once walked in, the present evil age, the time between the times, the age that we live in, that is governed or viewed without God in mind. In other words, it still has, has people living in it who, whose eyes have not been opened, whose heart is still spiritually dead to, to, to seeing God, to knowing him. Such were the Ephesians. But Paul continues, and this gets to the second point, that if this world exists, is there someone who organizes it or even governs it? And there is. And this gets to the devil or the prince of the air. Paul says that our spiritual depravity not only leaves us in a world where we are controlled and governed by life apart from God, but that there is actually someone who is in command of these dark forces, as it were, or this present evil age. And no, it's not Sam Walton. Let me get that on the record. The Bible refers to this agent as the prince of the air, verse 2 there. Satan or the devil. And there are a lot of other names for, for him. All right, so much of this letter to the Ephesians, as we've noticed already, talks about the unseen. Talks about spiritual matters, a spiritual world around us that has massive influence on us and our world. And for the Ephesians, right, it would be strange for Paul not to talk about these spiritual realities. Let's keep that in mind. That was their life as worshipers of magic and at the temple of Artemis and, and everything that Ephesus was known for at this point in time. But it's no different today, friends. We may ignore the unseen or spiritual world, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Paul will tell us later in chapter 6 
that our battle is not a battle of flesh and blood, but what is a spiritual one. It is the unseen forces that are still given permission to roam about in this, what, present evil age, this world. And Satan, or the prince of the air, as Paul refers to him here, is the one who rules and is behind the orchestration of this world that the Ephesians once walked in some way. It's unclear how Satan works and what he does. Uh, personally, I think C.S. Lewis comes the closest to it in his book, The Screwtape Letters, if you've ever written, or, or sorry, if you've ever read that. But two things to consider here about this. One, Paul. Paul has no problem believing this. He has no problem believing in Satan or a prince of the air influencing those who were once spiritually dead. And why would that be? Let's just remember his background. Let's remember his story, right? His testimony of what he was doing before he was made alive in Christ. And that was what? He was killing Christians. He was convincing himself that this was okay. He knows that that was not of the living God, that he was following someone else, whether he knew that or not. That rules this present evil age. Paul did not have a problem believing this. Jesus doesn't have a problem acknowledging this as well. But two, this prince of the air, according to Paul, is still at work today. You notice that. Talks about as he reads here, writes here, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul did not say following the prince of the power of this air who is no longer at work. Paul said who is at work and at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, who are they? Well, they're simply those who are still what? Dead spiritually. That's all he means by that phrase. There are those who are dead spiritually still and have not believed in Christ or whom God has not made alive. In other words, it is not Christians he's referring to here, although Christians are still subject in, in some ways uh, to Satan's schemes and attacks, but those that are still dead in their sins who are not only subject to his work, but are in some way, in some way, following him according to Paul in this, in this text. And the Bible's point, though, is that regardless of what that looks like, following this prince of the air, right, humans are in one of two camps. And this is really the, the point for him at this, at this stage. They're in one of two camps. They are either controlled by the Holy Spirit or they are controlled by the world or the prince of this air who rules it. No one stands neutral. No one is on neutral ground with the world that Paul is describing here, that he is reminding the Ephesians of. We are either aligned with Christ or we are aligned with the prince of the air again, whether we know it or not. Daryl Bach writes this, So there are two powers at work in the world, one divine that we see back in chapter 1, verse 20, and another destructive, as we read here in verse 2. But everyone, Everyone aligns with one or the other. Now, Paul is not telling the Ephesians this to scare them, and I'm certainly not uh, telling you this to, to guilt you or, or scare you either, although it is sobering and should inform both their prayer life and their lives in general and ours as well. 
Rather, Paul is telling them this to show them that there is a power among them that is at work in those who are spiritually dead and was at work once in you too. A power that is way more powerful than you were, a power that you had no hope of, 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 of defeating yourself. And he's doing this, why? To remind them of another power. Coming back to chapter 1 that they would know the immeasurable greatness of the power that is God who is now overruling this power as well. That's his point. The power of God, again, who has made them alive with Christ. A power that by grace has caused them to switch sides of the battle, as it were. A power that is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, going back to one, chapter 1, verse 21. That's Paul's point. So this should sober us, as I said, for sure. We need to be aware of what is going on around us, and we need to, to be able to name it as well. And I think that there's some hesitation in our modern, postmodern, post-postmodern age, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, to actually name something like this. But this exists. The Bible is very clear about this. But here's the other thing. We, we don't need to fear it either. And I'm, I'm, I'm positive that is one of Paul's points to the Ephesians as well, who perhaps maybe more than us live in a very, in a, lived in a much more visible, spiritually visible world. You can go to many parts of the world today, and you understand what that means when I say much more visible spiritual world. And when you see things that are happening that your brain's not used to seeing, as I experienced on a trip to Brazil in high school one time, um, that frightens you. That frightens you. And what Paul is trying to tell them is, yes, that exists, but you don't need to fear that. Because the, the power that has brought you from death to life is a power over all other powers in the world. And nothing can undo that. One note about following this prince of the air. What does this look like before we move on to the next point? Well, the first thing that we might think of when we think about the devil and we think about Satan is certainly, you know, somebody dressed up in red with a pitchfork. Um, or, you know, at this time of year, we might think about movies like The Exorcist. And we think about uh, Satan's working in very uh, ugly and destructive, demonic ways. And, I, and I'm sure that, that you know, that that is, that, that is, that is true in, in, in some senses. I'm sure that that is possible. Uh, but but I, I'm not convinced that the only way that Satan works, and perhaps even the way he chooses to work the most, is in a way that causes our heads to spin around and vomit pea soup. Now, the devil clothes himself in things that we are already drawn to and that we admire. Um, I love the band Wilco, and they sing a song titled, Hell is Chrome. Chrome, thinking about chrome on a bicycle that is, or you know, a bike that's shiny. And the opening line reads, when the devil came, he was not red. He was chrome, and he said, come with me. So I went. So I went. The caricature right, of the devil in, in red with a pitchfork was actually originally designed by Christians to mock the devil, to not be afraid of it. But what is it used as today? Today it's used to mock those who actually believe in things like the devil. But friends, the devil is not red. The devil is chrome. He is shiny, attractive, subtle, 
and plays on the things that our hearts naturally want. The devil makes us feel safe, makes us feel like we belong. But is the father of all lies, according to Scripture. And the spiritually dead are those that are not aware of this and blissfully go along with it. But the Bible is clear that he is still out, that he still aims to devour and destroy. And, and, and while, while Christians are, are hid in Christ, as Paul has been saying, and certainly secure, he is also telling us to be aware of this, to not laugh at it. Again, we don't need to fear, but we need to be aware of the realities going on around us. As Charles Baudelaire said, the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. He is cunning. He is delightful. And he is at work, according to Paul in Ephesians 2. Right, but there's one more, and we've looked at so far the world. We looked at the prince of the air who uh, in some way rules and governs this space for a time being, by the way. That will not always be that way. Um, and Paul now moves on to talk about the flesh, the flesh. And this is a massive concept that we'll try to scratch the surface of this morning. But look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This word flesh can mean several things. It can be the physical body in Scripture. Um, it can be our skin. But it can also have a broader definition to mean our condition uh, because of our sin. In other words, Paul is talking about here human nature. Human nature, a hot topic for sure today. If the world is the collective mentality or outlook of life without God, the flesh is the nature of those in that world that we are all subject to as we come into this world. And this human nature leads to what he says, what Paul says first, in our carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. In other words, sin, our nature, does not just affect the external behaviors of our life. It, it affects the internal as well, right? It, it affects the way we think, our motives, uh, all of it. It is more better understood as spiritual DNA than it is just sort of this uh, external thing that shows up whenever we don't say thank you or whatever, whatever unpleasantry you can think of. Right? And the consequence of this is by nature, Paul says, what we are objects of wrath. And this is often the hard part as we get to this section, right? This is the hard part for us to hear and to understand. And so I want to look at this. First, why are the spiritual dead objects of wrath? Sounds, it sort of sounds unfair if you, if you want to be, be honest. Well, Paul is assuming something here that we might be or might not be assuming. And it's a rather large assumption that the whole of Scripture carries with it. And that is why uh, the why uh, the spiritual dead are objects of wrath have to do with our understanding of original sin. And the way the Bible talks about original sin is that it talks about us being in Adam. This is Paul's assumption. Adam, as the Bible talks about it, is our representative, right? He is our representative 
such that what is true for Adam is true for us. And as we all know how the story goes, right, Adam did pretty well for two chapters of the Bible. One of those chapters, he wasn't even born yet. And then by chapter three, he blows it, right? He falls. Him and Eve alike as the image of God. And so what is true for Adam as our representative in that moment becomes equally true for us, even though we have not been born yet. Again, this is a massive assumption for Paul. Now, many will say, that's not fair. I wasn't even there in the garden. Why am I responsible for what someone else did? Why would Paul even say that I am an object of wrath? When I had nothing to do with this. And so just two, two quick responses to that, although there's more. One, and I say this not tongue-in-cheek, I say this honestly, do you think you would do any better? And this is really the, the, the soul-searching that I had to do in my own life. I, I, you know, as the Lord was opening my eyes to depravity and to sin, why would I think I would not take of this fruit, as it were? I do it all the time. In my previous life, if you will, before I was made alive with Christ, what would be any different in the sense of being given uh, agency to go do what it is you want to do? Why do I think I would have done any different? And there are some questions that come along with that uh, that, that, that I'm sure you know, we can talk about at a different time. You know, what, Adam hadn't fallen yet, and I get that. But I think it's worth us investigating, do we think we would have done any better? And I know that I wouldn't. And so I'm, I'm okay to sit under the representative head, as the Bible calls, calls it, of Adam. That's who I am a part of and in line with. But the second thing here, as we talk about imputation, and that's really what this is, this is the imputation of Adam's sin. The second thing is, you're going to want this idea of imputation in just a second. So hold on. Don't, don't get too upset about original sin and about, the wrath, about being agents of wrath. You're going to want to understand this as it pertains to uh, the good news here in a second. But this is foundational for Paul, and more importantly for understanding how powerful and how gracious God is. That in Adam we all fell, and because we are all born of Adam— we are connected to this line that is by nature an object of wrath. Just to try to quickly illustrate this idea of representation, because it's foreign to us to some extent, our government sort of has it. But if you go back to the story of David and Goliath that we talked about and that you might be more familiar with, that is, that is a great picture of representation. That as they went out to war, what did they do? They didn't just take all the armies and everybody just fight and see who's left standing. They said, you bring your best. And we'll have them fight, and whoever wins, wins, and whoever loses, everybody loses. Whoever wins, everybody wins. Right? They will represent you. That's what's going on there. That's representative fighting in that sense, but that's a representative head. This is what's true for us as Adam as our first parent. He is our representative, and what happens for him happens for us, right? But, there, but, but then there's the sort of spiritual DNA uh, of his original sin that comes out into us, whether we like it or not. And this one maybe is easier to understand because we understand biological DNA, right? When the baby is born, oh, uh, she or he has their mother's eyes and their father's smile. 
I know for us, uh, we had one with blonde curly hair, and we weren't sure where that came from, but we had to go back a few generations, and sure enough, there it is. And so we understand this idea of biological DNA and what Paul's assuming here, but what Scripture teaches is that this is the same thing for our spiritual DNA, which means that you and I, we come into this world, objects of wrath, however difficult that is to to stomach, um, however challenging that is to believe. But again, why is he doing this? Why is he reminding them? of who they once were and where they were once headed. It's to show them the power of God in their life. It's it's to make them small, as it were, but to make Jesus great. And unless you carry with you the understanding of the imputation of Adam's sin and all that implies, Scripture's not great anymore. Scripture's an interesting story with some interesting ideas and things, but it is not powerful. And that's Paul's point to them, that they would understand who they are because of Adam, but that that was before, before God made what? You alive with Christ. And just, and this is Paul's argument in Romans 5, just As sin came into the world through one man, so does righteousness come to all through one man. For those who believe in Christ. You got a problem with the imputation of Adam and his sin into your life? We can talk about it, but there's not too much problems with the imputation of Jesus' righteousness that what? That is is what uh, makes you uh, presentable to God. What brings you this wonderful salvation that he has worked on your behalf? And this is Paul's point. And he travels down this road, and he, he, he looks at the world in which they once belonged, and he looks at the, the prince of the air that, that is still at work, that you in, in, in some senses have been rescued from, not necessarily from him, but even his own demise one day that is coming. And he's pointed out their flesh and what it deserved, and it deserved God's wrath Paul justly deserved it, you justly deserve it, and I justly deserved it. For Paul, this is the nail in the coffin for all things. But it's what leads him to give us the two greatest words in all Scripture. Look at it in verse 4. This is where we're ending for next week. To give us what? But God. To lead you back down the path, as it were, to show you that this is all about what God has done in your life. But God, this is the one who is at work in you. This is the one who is making you go from death to life. This is the one who, by his grace alone, is demonstrating his power in and through his church. This is all about what God has done in and through the Ephesians. And friends, this is all about what God has done in and through you as well. This is why Paul wants us to go back, to remember who we once were, right? To remember the church before. Because if we don't, right, the church after will not carry the luster of our hearts that it deserves. And more importantly, as I try to land this plane here, We will understand power, but we will not believe in the love and kindness of God, which comes out in his grace. 
that he didn't just go out into a field, right, and, and see something that he could, he could change and make differently for his own, you know, glory and satisfaction, which is true. He wanted it. What did the guy say out there in the farm? I'll take it. I'll take it. That's his declaration upon you. That's his declaration. Come back next week as we look at who we are after. What God has saved us from, what he has made us alive in Christ for. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text, and we thank you for the challenges that it presents. Uh, the things that are foreign even to our culture and perhaps maybe even to us as we talk about Satan, as we talk about original sin, as we look at the wrath of God and what that means. And um, we'll talk more about that too next week. But I pray that beyond all of that, that whatever distraction might be there, that, that we would see this history of ours not, not as something that we are still trying to escape, not as something that we um, are, are, have are threatened to fall back into, but as a demonstration of your power and love and kindness to us, your grace to work in us this way, to make us alive in Christ, to make us alive with him, that the same power that has raised him from the dead is the same power that resides in those who believe. Would you make that more of a reality to us? Would you cause us to believe that more and more as your people? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.